Well, if you haven't already done so, let's turn to Second Thessalonians. Jesus said in Luke 18, verse 7, Will not God bring about justice for His elect who cry to Him day and night? And will He delay long over them? I tell you that He will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Now, perhaps you've heard that verse. Jesus asking, uh, uh, it's a, a rhetorical question that assumes a negative answer. Will he find faith on the earth? But it's more than that. It's not just any faith. It's the faith. If you were hearing that in the Greek, you would hear the definite article before faith. So what he's saying is, will he find the faith on the earth when he comes? It's not just any faith. It's not will he find Islam. You know, will he find Mormonism or Hinduism or Buddhism or any manner of faith? Will he find people of faith? No, will he find the faith, that is the faith, in Jesus Christ? Will he find that when he returns? Jesus prophetically knew that with the exception of believing Israel, he would not. And it's kind of a stirring question, a stirring thought. That after the church is caught up, the world will enter into that time of God's indignation, the tribulation. We've been talking about that. Why? Why must that be? Why does that happen? Well, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10 tells us, and we'll get to this uh, either on Sunday or a week from Sunday, they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. There aren't all kinds of truths, all manner of truths. There's one truth, and His name is Jesus, who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Me. And so here we are, just 18 to 20 years after Jesus declared that there would be a coming global faithlessness, and the Apostle Paul is writing to the new believers at Thessalonica and telling them that the state of the world at Christ's coming would be just that, faithless. That that really is the problem that the people at Thessalonica were facing at the time. They had faith in Jesus, but they were surrounded by those who did not have faith. And faithlessness does not like faithfulness. And so they were under intense affliction, And persecution, we already read that in the previous letter that we've studied through. Paul deals with it even more so in this letter. Thessalonica is a large coastal Greek metropolis. On the northwestern inlet of the Aegean Sea, it was a great location for ships to come in and out of a protected harbor, a booming town at the time of Paul's writing. Several hundred thousand people living there. The date of 2 Thessalonians is still the 50 AD time frame. Either just after by a few months or just before by a few months. 1 Thessalonians as we call it. And it begins Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. It's funny to me because Silvanus is Silas. And they say Silvanus because that's the more proper Greek way to say it. We think of him as Silas. But then they say Timothy, which is the more Englishized way to say Timotheus. So I don't understand why they don't say, you know, Paulos, Silvanus, and Timotheus. But this same trio are listed at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians. 
Okay, so they were all involved in the writing. It's interesting because Paul doesn't say Paul and Silas and Timothy. He says Paul, Silas, and Timothy. He's saying it together. And many uh, scholars think that these two letters really were kind of a group effort. Written together. Now Paul goes back and forth in both letters, speaking collectively and then speaking in the first person. So he does both. But it appears that Silas and Timothy were as much in on this as Paul was, at least in terms of the penmanship. But you all know, the author is the Holy Spirit. The author of Scripture always has been, always is the Holy Spirit. Men writing down, inspired by the Spirit of God, as spoke by the Spirit of God. Don't forget that. We're not reading Paul's letters. We're reading the Spirit's letters as penned by Paul and sent out to the churches. Now, at this time, Timothy had just returned from Thessalonica with a mixed report to the Apostle. That the the church itself is persevering, is strong, is growing, and is severely afflicted. Is under intense persecution. Again, we see that even more in this letter. But back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul wrote, I remind you, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. So we got down to Athens, heard about what was going on up there, in Thessalonica, sent Timothy back, just reviewing this for you. Now Timothy's come back to Paul and reported what's going on. Now, this is interesting to me, and I've been hinting at this when we studied First Thessalonians. But the reason that some think, and I lean this direction, that Second Thessalonians is actually Paul's first and not second letter, it's because that this letter may have first been carried by Timothy up to Thessalonica from Paul at Athens. This letter first, the the short letter, goes up there. And then Timothy comes back and reports what's going on, and then Paul writes 1 Thessalonians, because 1 Thessalonians addresses the fact that, okay, things are good. Let me give you four quick points on this perspective. It doesn't really matter, and it's not going to blow anyone's theology out of the water, but I find it interesting and I think worth considering. And the first point is simply this. Brevity versus longevity. That the simple size of both letters is curious, that this brief letter, 2 Thessalonians as we call it, is half the length in terms of number of verses as 1 Thessalonians. This letter is pithy and prophetic, And perhaps now followed up by the longer letter of encouragement that we read in 1 Thessalonians. By the way, Paul writes this letter, 2 Thessalonians, with such specific prophetic chronology that many New Testament scholars won't touch it. Which is sad to me. Chapter 2 especially is so specific as to the day of the Lord, as to what's coming, as to what is going to happen... The Bible scholars just keep a hands-off approach and go on to other books. Kind of like the book of Revelation. Let's not mess with the things that we don't understand. And I don't get that because the Bible was given to us to understand. All of Scripture is God's Word to us. 
And if we don't understand it, man, we need to spend a little more time in it, not less time. Gordon Fee writes this. He says, apart from scholars within the dispensational tradition, the second of these letters still remains something of a Cinderella. (laughs) He says, related to a general dislike of the eschatological or end times materials in chapter 2 which many scholars would like to think unworthy of the Paul they know and like from Galatians and Romans. That's just sad to me. It's the same Paul. It's not a distinction in theology or a difference from the way Paul wrote Galatians or or the high-mindedness of biblical theology in his letter to the church at Rome. If we believe, and I do, that the Holy Spirit authored all of these letters, then 2 Thessalonians is every bit as significant, even if there's a little bit of cinder on it. This letter deserves our attention and our focus. And as a matter of fact, without this letter, there are many things in the prophetic program of God we would not know at all. Things that Paul says that clarifies for us in depth and in detail. And actually, chapter 2, we're going to take on the next two Sundays. Just sit there in a few verses on next Sunday, and then the following Sunday a few more verses, so that we can really work out what God is saying through Paul in that chapter. But I was thinking about this this week, and the fact that you know this, this short, this letter of great brevity is avoided by so many scholars. And I was thinking, you know, theology is always safer than eschatology. It's always safer to sit up and more comfortable in the, in the ivory towers of the learned theologian than it is to be in the trenches of the church. Because as we talked about on Sunday, the trenches of the church involves the tension of the church. If we study eschatology, if we consider that we are living in the last days, that the return of Jesus is imminent, then we are in the place of tension between loving the lost and loving His appearing. I love my family and friends who don't know Jesus. I want them to know Jesus. They don't know Jesus yet, and yet I want Him to return, but I know when He returns, things will not go well for them. Now, I don't believe they're going to go straight to hell when Jesus calls us out, at least in, in, the, in the rapture of the church. There is still grace, and, and we'll talk about that in chapter 2. It's kind of remarkable. But it, it hurts to think about these things. I know that. In fact, even since Sunday, I've had a couple conversations with different ones of you who, with tears, have said, I don't like this place. I love Jesus. I want Him to come back so badly. But the moment I think about that, I am thrust into the reality that there are people who are lost right now. And I told you on Sunday, and I will tell you again, we must not be afraid to sit in that tension. To be motivated by it. We're not called to be comfortable. We're called to be bringers of the gospel of Jesus Christ with every last breath. So we should. Being in the trenches, it assumes an immediate escape followed by the immediate onslaught of the tribulation. But I'll tell you what, I would rather be in the trenches than in the ivory towers. I would rather be living out faith than just living out scholarship. I'm I'm appreciative of the scholars who really do work hard to, to explain and understand these things. But man, if our theology doesn't have hands and feet on it, then it's not worth the paper it's written on. We need to be out there in 
the trenches. So this letter is a letter of brevity. I kind of sidetracked there, but letter of brevity, the first letter has, has more longevity. Then the second thing to note about this is reaction to crisis versus reinforcement of composure. That this letter is a reaction to crisis. There are serious problems that are taking place in Thessalonica, not just their persecution. But 1 Thessalonians seems to be written to reinforce a church that has regained some sense of composure. And if you just read the two and look at the, the implications of both, 1 Thessalonians is a church that, yeah, they're still persecuted, but at least they're on sound footing now. Things seem to be in a better position. They're still concerned about those who have passed away. Paul addresses that, but they're not freaking out like they are when we hear what Paul's going to say in 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians, the people are distressed. Why are they distressed? Well, number three. You'll like this. Wonky forgery versus working faith. Wonky forgery. In this letter, Paul is responding to falsified document dumps on the Thessalonians. That is, someone has written a letter telling them and signing either Paul's name or perhaps Silas or Timothy, but signing one of their names, probably Paul's, saying, the tribulation is upon you now. I don't know why another believer would do that. Perhaps someone in the church thought that it would motivate them. Or perhaps someone outside of the church who heard about their teaching of the day of the Lord and really wanted to stick it to them. But there's a letter circulating. Paul's name is attached to it. From here on out, you're going to hear Paul say, this is my hand that I wrote this letter with. Or I, Paul, am writing this letter. Or I have taken up the pen now and written it. Because after that, Paul realizes these people will do things like Forge letters. And in this forgery, well, look at chapter 2, verse 1, just for a moment. Paul says, now we request you, brethren, and this is the reason why this letter was written. We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So this forgery is, is going around. We're going to talk about that more on Sunday, but Paul wrote what we call Second Thessalonians to give them some rock-solid eschatological clarification. And so that's another difference between the two letters. One letter is restoring hope. The other one already has hope. What do you mean? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. What's missing? Hope. In 1 Thessalonians, remember Paul references faith, hope, and love, all three. In verse 3, he says, we're constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. But hope is missing in this letter. He doesn't say you've got steadfast hope. Why? Because the people are feeling hopeless. Because they figure they have somehow gone right into the day of the Lord. They've missed the rapture of the church. And hope is failing, not steadfast, in this letter. 
First Thessalonians is steadfast. Here, it's just absent. So, either Paul wrote First Thessalonians first, and the people were steadfast in hope, but then they lost their hope in short order, or he wrote this letter to a people who were feeling hopeless, and then when he hears back, he writes First Thessalonians talking about their steadfastness of hope, which has now settled back in. Well, Rick, does it matter which letter came first? Again, no. Both came from the same trio, Paul, Timothy, and Silas. Both came to the same church in Thessalonica, and both came, we believe, in the same year, right at 50 AD. But again, 2 Thessalonians, man, this is a quick letter. We're going to have a few of those between now and the, and the end of the New Testament. Letters that if you blink, you will miss them. They will go by very quickly. This one, let me give you a three-part outline that we'll use over the next couple or three weeks before we are on into other things. The outline is three parts. Three chapters, three parts. Very easy. Persecution, prophecy, practicality. Persecution, prophecy, and practicality. Or you could put it this way. Chapter 1 is the climate of affliction. That's persecution. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, is the coming of the Lord. Prophecy. And then finally, chapter 2, verse 13, through the end of the letter, practicality, or the call to self-discipline. I kind of like that last section. I want to call it, if I can get this right, propheticality. Propheticality. I think that's a good word I'm trying to coin. So say it with me. Propheticality. Or not. You don't have to say it. What do you mean, Rick? I mean there is practicality in that of that which is prophetic. I call the last section propheticality because it is the practical discipline of prophetic living in the last days. The Bible prophecy is not impractical. It is one of the most practical things we are given in Scripture. It has practically altered my entire life. Ask my wife. My understanding, the way I live, what I think, what matters to me, has been practically altered more by Bible prophecy than any other thing save the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. So there is practicality in understanding Bible prophecy. Persecution, prophecy, practicality, those are the three sections of the book. Well, let's pick it up now in verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you, among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. And this much is absolutely certain. Choosing to follow Jesus in Thessalonica guaranteed suffering. Promised harassment. Now think about that in today's day and age. Not the kind of harassment we as Americans might feel like we get from non-Christians. Or sometimes from different governmental agencies doing things that are offensive to our faith and upsetting to us as followers. And yet here we are, freely still, every Sunday morning, every Wednesday night, and at times between gathering together in the name of the Lord Jesus without anyone hassling us. Imagine if you were in Thessalonica, a one-time pagan, brand new believer of Jesus Christ, And you're getting nailed for it. You can't get a job because people find out you're one of those Christians. You're laughed at on the street. There's physical violence taking place. There's persecution and affliction happening. And then you go to your non-believing friend and say, Hey, want to go to church with me? I'm sorry, what? 
Why would I do that? I saw you get beat up in the street yesterday for trying to tell someone else about Jesus. You're lucky I'm not beating you up right now. Think about how how do you evangelize in in a place where persecution and affliction are part and parcel of the whole thing? We don't get this like they got this in the first century. We may. Those days may yet be ahead of us. I don't know. Not the tribulation, but tribulations with a little t. We may yet face. So why would anybody in that climate come to faith in Jesus Christ? Because it's the truth. Simply because it's true. After the Pharisees commanded Peter and John to stop teaching in the name of Jesus, do you remember what they said? Acts chapter 4 verse 19, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We can't help it. You can tell us to shut up, but we saw this. We walked with Him. We knew of Him. We heard His teaching. We saw the miracles. We lived out daily with the truth Himself. We can't stop. And John, later in his life, would write in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And you might say, well, that's great for John and for Peter. They saw. Blessed are those who believe and yet have not seen. And the church at Thessalonica, how far away from Judea, All the way across in Europe, this church of one-time pagan people did not see, but they believed because they heard the ring of truth. And the truth got into them and got a hold of them. And my friends, when you know what's true, you got to follow through. Is this true to you? If we know this is true, then we have to follow through. Come what may. I mean, come hell or high water i got to follow through with the Word of God because it is absolute truth. Persecutions and afflictions do not kill faith in the truth. They actually inspire it. They build it up. They strengthen it. How many times have I quoted Tertullian to you saying the blood of the martyrs is seed? That kind of persecution is what the church endured for the first 283 years and it exploded across the globe. Because that's what persecution does. And I often think when we're praying for one another and we're praying for the ease of life and for the gentility of our faith and and not to have to go through hard times, I get this little check in my spirit saying, I'm not sure we ought to be praying that way. I don't pray for persecution, but perhaps we ought to be praying, Lord, do whatever it takes to get the gospel out. And that means if we come under intense affliction, okay, if that moves the gospel, bring it on, Lord. Not because we're stupid and we want to get hurt, but because we want the gospel to be heard. And so those in Thessalonica, they were hearing. They were built up. And they understood, I believe, what Jesus was talking about. He said in Mark 10.29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions. You get that too? 
and in the age to come, eternal life. Remember that word eternal. In fact, kind of put that on the shelf because we're going to come back to it. But why do afflictions and persecutions so often follow a faith that is just so good? Now see, this is the irony looking at it from a different angle. Why is it that loving Jesus causes you to get persecuted? Especially those in Thessalonica. They had a message of hope, of, of faith, of love, of compassion, of care, of really looking out for one another, of people really mattering. And there's nothing like it on the planet. Never has been, never will be, other than the gospel of Jesus that, that causes the people to really want others to matter. Why is that so offensive? You ever thought about that? Why is my Christian faith so offensive to the non-believer? Well, verse 5. This is plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Don't misunderstand that. Because if you read that verse and you think, oh, okay, so i got to suffer to be made worthy, you've missed the entire verse. In fact, that rips it right out of context. That is not what Paul is saying. Listen again. This is plain indication of God's righteous judgment. What is? The afflictions, the persecution, plain indication of God's righteous judgment so you'll be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. He's not saying you've got to pay for it through your suffering. You've got to buy your way in through your persecution. That is not it. You can't pay for it. Please understand that. No amount of good works is going to get you in the door. Because your one single bad work is enough to contend you for all eternity. So you can't buy in. That's not what Paul's saying. What he's saying here is that persecution is clear evidence that God's judgment of this world is spot on. Clear indication of God's righteous judgment. That is God's righteous discernment. Jesus, John tells us in John 2.24, on his part was not entrusting himself to anyone, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in the heart of man. That's God's righteous judgment. Are you following me? God has made a judgment, and that is that there is sin in the heart of man. And because there's sin in the heart of man, as we said, I think last week or a week before, where there's sin in the heart of man, sin hates goodness. Sin hates love. Sin hates forgiveness. Sin hates light. Darkness hates light. And God has righteously judged, has correctly discerned that what is in this world, that what is in the heart of man, is dark and is sinful and will react with persecution toward anything that is of the light and truth and goodness and love. That's God's righteous judgment. Listen to Jesus on the matter. John chapter 15, verse 18, He said it this way, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, 
because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, listen to this, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for sin. That's clear enough, isn't it? Jesus said, if I had never told them what the truth was, then, you know, they wouldn't know any better. But I did tell them, and I've told you, and now because I've declared it, sin is clear. He says, he who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. He just nailed it. He he says it clearly right there. There's God's righteous judgment. That the light is hated by the darkness. That the sinner hates the Savior. Until in that divine glorious moment, the sinner turns around and says, Forgive me. And that's all it takes. And then everything changes. But why do persecutions and afflictions come? God's righteous verdict on the world. And those who accept the choice of Jesus in that righteous verdict, all you must do is accept that choice of Jesus for you by simply trusting Him and you are counted worthy. Worthy. Verse 6. For after all, Paul writes, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Anyone remember what the three R's are? The three R's. Anyone? Reading, writing, and arithmetic. And, and writing has to be misspelled for that to work. You know that. You know when that was first coined? The first time we actually see reading, writing, and arithmetic can, compared or talked about as three R's goes all the way back to the 5th century A.D. You can read it in Augustine's Confessions. I'm just going to read this to you. It, it, it's a little bit of a side tra- trail, but it's really funny. Augustine wrote, Even now... I have not yet discovered the reasons why I hated Greek literature when I was being taught it as a small boy. He says, Latin I deeply loved. Not at the stage of my primary teachers, but at the secondary level taught by the teachers of literature called grammarians. He said, the initial elements where one learns the three R's of reading, writing, and arithmetic, I felt to be on less a burden and an affliction than the entire series of Greek classes. Augustine's way of saying, I hated Greek. But that's, that's the first time we hear reading, writing, and arithmetic as the three R's. Later, historically, in the New England colonies in the 17th century, they added a fourth R. This was how school was taught in our public schools, in the colony schools, back in the 17th century. The four R's, reading, writing, arithmetic, and religion which they considered foundational for learning and understanding truth. By the way, a little shameless plug, that's why I love classical conversations. If you happen to be around here on a Friday, we have a group here called Classical Conversations, and it is kind of a, not a homeschooling co-op, but it's, it's homeschooling through the week, and then Fridays everybody comes together, and it is classical Christian education, and I love it. 
because I'm watching my own children learn in a classical way reading, writing, arithmetic and in all of it a Christian worldview. It's the way it ought to be. That's where true knowledge and learning comes from. Well, 2,000 years ago, back to this letter, Paul gave four R's, not reading, writing, arithmetic, and religion, but four R's of God's righteous judgment, and they're right here in the verses I just read to you. Repayment, relief, revelation, and retribution. Consider these. Repayment. Repayment. He says he will repay with affliction those who have afflicted you. How do you feel about that? I'm like, all right. Yeah, you got on to me. Just wait till my father gets home. Now, you might say, well, Rick, that's not a real Christian attitude. I say it's biblical, man. He will repay with affliction those who have afflicted you. Let me, let me get down to more of the heart of this. And why, why would that be a good thing? Listen, if North Korea were to fire off a nuclear missile at Guam or hit anywhere on the U.S. mainland even, how should our government respond? Should we send a note of apology and a bouquet of flowers to Kim Jong-un? How should we respond? How would we as a nation respond to such a threat, to an attack, to a nuclear attack, which, if you've been reading in the news, has been threatened? Missiles, they say we're going to aim them at Guam. And our president in trouble for saying that we're going to unleash fire and fury on them if they do such a thing or if they even threaten to. And so all the talk in the news, it's just fascinating to me. Politics, I love politics. Fascinating. They're more concerned about the rhetoric of Trump than the threat of North Korea right now. And I, but, I, but in the context of what we're talking about, how should we respond? Swiftly and thoroughly, I would hope... You might say, well, Rick, you're a warmonger. Hey, maybe I am. (laughs) But what about justice? What about what's right? Fathers, if some man was to come along and rape your daughter, would you just want him to be set free? Sisters, if someone shot your brother, would that be okay? Isn't there something in the heart of all of us as human beings, not those who just want to go off to war and cause mayhem and carnage in the world, but there is a cry in the human heart that screams for justice. I want justice. And we struggle sometimes with even what does that mean? What what does justice look like? And so I come to Scripture and I hear the Lord say, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And I think, oh, Thank you, Lord. I don't have to worry about it. Justice. We want justice. God's righteous judgment will be meted out in repayment. Paul wrote in Romans 12, 19, Never take your own revenge, beloved. Leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Where did Paul get that idea? Vengeance is mine, I will repay. I'll tell you what, I'll read it to you. It's Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. If you'd like to go back in your Bibles and follow along, you can do that. Deuteronomy 32, 35. It is at the end, in fact, it is the conclusion of a song that Moses wrote. And it reads like this, Deuteronomy 32, 35. Actually, I'll pick it up in verse 34. 
Is it not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine. And retribution? In due time their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. For the Lord will vindicate His people and will have compassion on His servants when He sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. And He will say, Where are their gods? The rock in which they sought refuge. You Bible students, think about Revelation chapter 6. The rock in which they sought refuge. That is, pagans, unbelievers, those in rebellion who cry out to the rocks in Revelation chapter 6, Fall on us! And protect us from the wrath of the Lamb. And God says all the way back through Moses, Where are their gods and the rock in which they sought refuge? Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your hiding place. See now that I, I am He, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and and give life. I have wounded, it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. He goes further, he says, I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword will devour flesh. With the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy, rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants, and will render vengeance on his adversaries, and will atone for his land and for his people. And that is the closing stanza of the Song of Moses. Which is interesting to me. Because that prophetic song sings of the day when the righteous slain will gather on the sea of glass in front of the throne of God in heaven and they will sing in mass the song of Moses. That song. Revelation chapter 15 verse 3 And they sang, John foresaw, the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. You were right, we were wrong. Your vengeance, when it's meted out by God, is right on. Your justice, your judgment, absolutely right, as is His grace. You see, in that gathering, there before the throne, in that singing of the song of Moses, And the song of the Lamb, we hear the perfect balance praised of the nature of God. Song of Moses, the righteous justice of God. Song of the Lamb, the gracious forgiveness of God. And both are songs that we will sing before Him. For following 2,000 years of unmerited, undeserved, unwarranted grace, God's righteous judgment will come. And with it, repayment. And secondly, with it, relief. Back in 2 Thessalonians, relief. Chapter 1, verse 7, he says, I will give relief to you who are afflicted. That word relief there is onesis. And I really like the word because it's translated, get this, onesis, the relaxation of tension. 
We've been talking about tension a little bit, haven't we? As followers of Jesus Christ and feeling that tension between the love of Jesus coming and the love of the lost. And we are in that place. And we must and we will and we should feel that tension. But guess what? He's coming at a time where relief will be given and there will be a relaxing of that tension. It will be gone. You will not feel that strain forever. But what he's talking about here is specifically relief to the persecuted. Relief to those afflicted. Matthew 5.10, Jesus said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think about a group of righteous slain. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, tells us that when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar that is in heaven the souls of those who have been slain because of the Word of God. And because of the testimony which they had maintained. Let me tell you something. This is a great promise. It is not one that should make us shrink back from boldly proclaiming the Gospel at all. But it is amazing, a remarkable promise, that during the first three and a half years of the tribulation, people will get saved. That there will be what we might call the righteous slain. And it goes on to talk about them in Revelation chapter 7. But just listen to this. Those who have been slain because of the word of God, martyrdom taking place in the first three and a half years. As things are breaking loose. And verse 10, Revelation 6, they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one of them a white robe. And they were told they should rest for a little while longer. They should rest. They should have relief. That word relief also means rest. Rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been killed, would be completed also. John notices that. One of the elders talks to John and says, Who are these? Over in chapter 7. In fact, it says, after these things, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels who are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders answered saying to me, Who are these clothed in the white robes? Who are they? And where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. (laughs) Which is John's way of saying, (laughs) You're asking me? i got to tell you this. I think it's the right role of an elder to ask leading questions. This is what an elder does. Asking leading questions that helps the Johns uh, of the church to think about it and process. What am I seeing? What's happening here? And so the elder asks, and John says, Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So there's your proof. There are those who will come out of the tribulation period. Those who will be martyred because they come to faith in Jesus. They will have missed the rapture. 
They will not go home at the time of the rapture of the church. Maybe that eases your tension just a little bit. That if you are not able to get through to somebody, that doesn't mean there's no hope. And when you can't get through to somebody, perhaps what you ought to do more than anything else is pray harder. Intercede more. You may not be the voice that can get through to them at all. God may have someone else lined up. So you pray, and you wait, and you trust the righteous judgment of God, but know that there will be those who by the amazing grace of God even come out of that time of tribulation, washing their robes in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, Revelation 7.15, they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple, and He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle, that is, His covering over them. They will hunger no longer nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat, for the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. That's relief. So while repayment is going on on the earth, relief is going on in heaven for those who have been martyred for their faith. Speaking now of Revelation, well, after the repayment, the relief, comes that third word, it's Revelation. Verse 7 again, back in 2 Thessalonians, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. Now there's your fire and your fury. You know, President Trump, again, he's taken flack for his rhetoric against North Korea. But we're told that when Jesus comes again, there's going to be some furious fire in the heavens. That the angels are going to be coming in in flaming fire. Can you even imagine that sight? What will that look like? When the world sees Jesus returning in His glorious appearing, and all the angels around Him flaming fire all around as Jesus comes down. Christ Jesus the Lord. And the world will see Him. Daniel tells us they will be in the midst of Armageddon. A final world war taking place. And when they see Jesus coming down and and all the flames of fire with the angels around Him, the stupid of earth will train all their weapons on Him. And in one fell swoop, He takes them out. The revelation of Jesus. Isaiah 66 verse 15 says, Behold, the Lord will come in fire and His chariots like the whirlwind to render His anger with fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. Remember this, I'll address this later. Jesus is the one doling out retribution. He's the Lord doing it. That's talked about in Isaiah 66. Psalm 104 verse 4 tells us He makes the winds His messengers, flaming fire His ministers. And the Hebrew writer gives us more understanding of that. Hebrews 1.7 says, Of the angels, he says, who makes His angels' winds and His ministers a flame of fire. I don't know exactly how that works. But apparently there's something flame-like about angels. We have a physical representation in fire on the earth, but if we were to see the angels in the glory that God has poured onto them, it would be fiery. And as they come with Jesus, it will be fiery. 
Matthew 25, 31. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the angels. What about the saints? Haven't we been talking about Jesus coming back with the saints? I I thought we were part of that too. You know... Some commentators, wise, learned, studied men and women, don't deal well with this. They take the idea of Jesus returning with the angels and returning with the hagias, the holy ones, what we translate saints, and they just mix it together. They say the angelos and the hagias are one and the same. Because clearly Jesus, in Matthew 25, Jesus says He returns with the angels. So when he says over here that he returns with his holy ones, the holy ones must be the angels and not the saints. And and Pastor Rick, you're among those crazy people who think the church comes back with Jesus. I mean, where do you get that? Revelation 19. It's pretty obvious. Not to mention what I've told you before, that every single usage of the word hagias in the scriptures is saints. It is not referring to angels. And the context shows us that. But they say it's, you know, one and the same. I strongly disagree. And I'll more on that in just a second here. But the fourth R. Retribution. Repayment, relief, revelation, and retribution. Verse 8, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word retribution. Ecdesis. Ecdesis. Hard word to say. Ecdesis. <laughs> and it's vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He will deal out, dole out, mete out vengeance. And as I said before, the one doling it out is Jesus. Now note this in verse 8. Dealing out retribution, vengeance to who? Those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And my friends, that's the same person. What do you mean? Those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel are the same person because the only way to know God is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't know Him any other way. Obedience to the gospel isn't all these acts that you do. Obedience to the gospel is saying, yes, I believe that Jesus is the exact representation of God. Yes, I believe that Jesus came as God in the flesh. That's obedience to the gospel. Once you've made that step of obedience, you know God. Why? Because God is fully explained in Jesus, John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. So we can put it this way. If you don't obey the gospel, it's because you don't know God. And if you don't know God, it's because you haven't obeyed the gospel. It's one and the same. And again, obedience to the gospel is the most simple thing a person can do. It is the flip of a switch on the heart. It's putting one's faith in Christ. And as I told you before, He's the one who pours out retribution. How do you know? Psalm 2, verse 9. Speaking of Mashiach, Messiah Jesus, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them 
like earthenware. Cheryl and I went several years ago, went early to Israel and, and, and went with our guide out to uh, Shiloh, to the site there of where the tabernacle was. Our guide, Aton, at the time. And Aton and Cheryl and I were walking along and, and we came to a section and he said, check this out. And we bent down and there were shards of pottery everywhere. And we began just picking them up and looking at them. He said, look at these. And he was fascinated. I'm like, what's up, Aton? He's like, well, all of this has been dug up. This is 2,000-year-old pottery. All of these shards everywhere, and we were picking them up and looking at them, and I'm going, I am holding history. And then it hit me how funny that was, because this was somebody's pot. I didn't even know what they used it for, and I quickly dropped the shard of pottery. But as we stood there, and this picture just came to mind, I mean, there were just pieces shattered everywhere. And that's the picture that David gives us in Psalm 2, that Jesus will shatter this world, will shatter the rebellious. And David says, now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that He not become angry. And you perish in the way for His wrath. Whose wrath? The wrath of Jesus Christ will soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. I don't think we talk enough about how awesome Jesus will be in His return. And about what He comes to do. The first time He came to spread His arms wide and have nails driven through His hands. The second time He comes with retribution. In fiery judgment. By the way, that describes, Psalm 2, describes the wrath of the Lamb. That is wrath, my friends. The shattering of, of humanity, the shattering of the earth like, like earthenware jars. And the wrath of the Lamb describes what takes place in the first half of the tribulation in Revelation chapter 6. So once again, the mid-tribulation rapture does not work if God has not destined us for wrath. Because that wrath that Jesus will bring will happen in the first half of the tribulation. And then in the second half, what is called the wrath of God. Well, back to 2 Thessalonians verse 9. These will pay the penalty, note this, of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Pause right there for a moment. This is incredibly important to understand. Is hell eternal? Is the punishment really forever? Now, I've, I've talked recently. I, I'm, I'm thinking actually specifically of a brother who may even listen to this, who I love and respect and I've had great conversations with. And he broached the subject with me of biblical universalism, as, as he called it, and sent me some, some thoughts about this, uh, a paper that he's writing on it and putting things together and seeking to understand that. And I, and I see him searching to understand. And I know where it comes from. This idea of, of, man, really? Does it fit with the grace of God in Jesus Christ that someone would go to hell forever? I mean, that's forever. <laughs> I understand punishment. 
I understand there are times where I've told my kids, you will sit in time out forever. There is no getting out of here for what you've done. I mean, you know, we have that kind of, we use the big words. God doesn't bloviate. He is not an exaggerator. God is not one who is known for rhetoric. Understand, if it is in the Scripture and God said it, it will come to pass. Faithful is He who called you, and faithfully He will bring it to pass. So this idea, and and I, I... Please, just stay with me in this for a second. I want to be doctrinally sound, but I understand the heart of compassion. And if I sit and think too long about someone burning in hell for all eternity, to me it's like, man, it's overwhelming. I can't think about that. It's too much. So I get universalism. I do understand why people go that route and why people say there's got to be an end point where perhaps then God can swing back around and pull them out. It's why in Catholicism there's purgatory. You go for just a little while. You pay for just some of your sin, you know, because, you know, the cross is not enough. That's the problem with purgatory, is that the cross is more than enough. But even so, it comes from that place of saying, let's look at hell as a short-term thing, and not long-term, and not eternal. Is hell eternal? And when Paul says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, is that translation correct? Or do we just have century upon century of tradition that's kind of messed up the way we understand it? Well, let's answer that question. Eternal. The word eternal is ionios. Ionios, which is translated, if you read the King James translation, everlasting. Eternal, everlasting, same concept, that it goes on and on. Conservative scholars, when they come to this word in the ancient Greek, will translate it without beginning or end. Okay, ionios, without beginning or end. So that would be God. No beginning, no end, always has been the Alpha and the Omega, forever, eternal. But it also can be translated, again, conservative scholars, with beginning, but no end. So it can be applied to you and me, because we all have a beginning, but in Christ Jesus, no end. The human soul has a beginning, no end. Okay, so Ionios can be translated that way. It's also, again, conservative scholars translated perpetuity. So it just goes on and on and on and on. But the universalist perspective says it's really not everlasting. It's not eternal. King James is wrong on that. It's just a traditional translation. The New American Standard and all the other uh, other ones that, that translate eternal. No, no. Ionios, they say, just means ages. And so we think of an age, right, as not that long, or or it could be long, but still it's a a set amount of time. Well, where do they get that? Part of it's compassion, but part of it is because of the root word of ionios. Ionios, meaning everlasting or eternal, comes from the word ion in the Greek, where we get our English word eon. And an eon in English can be forever, or a set period of time. The word eon, used in Scripture. Now get this, eon, the root word of ionios, it's used 118 times in the New Testament. That word translated uh, age or eternal. Understand that it can be temporal or eternal. 
eon, age, can be a specific amount of time or it can be everlasting. 38 times in the Bible, it's absolutely clear from the context, 38 times, age is talking about a temporal time period. Matthew 12, 32. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age, limited, or in the age to come, which sounds eternal. But if you're sticking with it's just a, a set amount of time, this age or the age to come. So there's only a set amount of time that that punishment happens. And yet, 38 times out of 118, it's clearly temporal. The rest of the time, it is obviously eternal. As in Matthew 6.13, Jesus says, Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Eon. So is God's the kingdom and the power and the glory just for an age? Or is it the kingdom and the power and the glory, is that God's forever? So see, there's two verses back to back. One means a shorter period of time and the other very long. How do we know? How do we know if the translation is eternal or temporal? Context is everything. We've been talking about this a little bit. You've got to look at the word in context. How is it being used? And that's not to try and skirt any issues. That's to understand it in truth. You can say someone is dumb and that means they can't speak. You can also say someone is dumb and that means they shouldn't speak. (laughs) Same word, but absolutely different in meaning. One talking about foolishness and lack of intelligence and is kind of a slam. And the other one is a physical reality, unable to speak. Different use of the word. How do you know which way you're to use the word dumb? It depends on the context. He can't speak, he's dumb. He shouldn't speak because he's dumb. See, it's, it's, it's context. And it's the same thing with ion. When the word is used, look at the context. Is God... Is His power and glory and kingdom forever. Ion. Yes. Context. Eternal. Is this age forever? No. This age is limited. Context. Temporal. Got it? You with me? Okay, I'm slowing up here. This is so important to get. Back to the other word. Ionios. That's the word that Paul is using right here. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Is that eternal? Ionios is used 68 times in 67 New Testament verses. And most often, 41 of the 68 times, it is connected with the word life. Ionios, life. That is eternal life. Which I think is pretty obvious in its meaning. Eternal life. But also, it's used this way. Eternal God. Eternal dwellings. Eternal weight of glory. Eternal dominion. Eternal comfort. Eternal salvation. Redemption. Inheritance. Covenant. The eternal kingdom. And the eternal spirit of God. Is any of that temporary? Not at all. Not even close. All of that is absolutely, clearly eternal in nature. The word means eternal. And if all those things are eternal, then you and I have to answer the question, are these things? Eternal fire is used three times. Matthew 18, verse 8. Matthew 25, 41. And Jude, verse 7. Eternal fire. 
The phrase eternal punishment is used by Jesus in Matthew 25, verse 46. Eternal sin. Mark chapter 3, verse 29. And by the way, the eternal sin is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Why would that be eternal sin? Because to blaspheme the Spirit is to say Jesus is not God. And if you say Jesus is not God, you reject the gospel of God. And if you reject the gospel of God, you have no salvation. Eternal judgment, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 2. Is there a judgment that's eternal? And then finally, here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, eternal destruction. These will pay the penalty of Ionios destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Now, now listen again. Seeking to understand, because it's not about being doctrinally right and proving everybody wrong. It's, it's about seeking the truth of the Word of God. And deeply compassionate people will ask, how can a loving God punish someone eternally for a momentary sin? It's a fair question, I think, to ask. The problem is, the question itself misunderstands the nature of God. The sin may seem temporary, but the sin is rebellion against a God who is Himself eternal. And that's the issue we must deal with. Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. He's not I was, he's not I will be, he's I am. Ever present, always existent. Which means, get this, if you sin against God yesterday, you sin against Him tomorrow. Today's sin impacted God the same 4,000 years ago our time as it did today because He's I Am. Everything to God who is outside of time is right now. Which is a frightening thought. See, we sin and we move on. We sinned yesterday, but now we have a brand new day. I did wrong, but now I've tried to make it right. But for God, it's all right now. And Jesus said, John 8.58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Clear indication of his nature. So God is eternal And therefore, sin is rebellion against an eternal God. Maybe the question we should ask, rather than how can a loving God punish someone eternally for a momentary sin, maybe we should ask, how can an eternal God offer everlasting life based on a momentary sacrifice? Are you with me on this? There's only one way this works, and that is if the the sacrifice itself is eternal. That is performed on the eternal God. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross. Jesus is eternal. And only an eternal sacrifice could eternally pay for your sin and for mine such that I can stand before God now who is the great I Am and all that sin that He would always be aware of is completely washed away because Jesus eternally died on the cross. That's awesome thinking. But it also explains something here about eternal punishment. We're dealing with a God who is not temporal in any sense of the word. Jesus became temporal in that He put on flesh temporarily, and yet even that 
is now without end as he was fully resurrected in his body, fully bodily resurrected and fully God, human and God both. I mean, it's just this whole thing is starting to make me sweat. (laughs) Revelation 5 verse 6. Think about this. Jesus, eternal God, who died on that cross. And what does John see when he sees Jesus in heaven? I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. He still sees the scars. He sees the wounded lamb in Jesus. Describes him that way. And those in heaven... Sing in Revelation 5.12, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I believe that we will see the scars on Jesus for all eternity because the eternal God died in a moment that we might be saved forever. So as I understand the plain text of Scripture, this penalty of eternal destruction, yes, is eternal and will be handed down by Jesus Himself because God is eternal. And if that ratchets up our concern for people who are lost, it should. I don't think the church has been serious enough you know, I remember growing up as a kid and hearing about that Baptist church over there where they had that, you know, fire and brimstone preacher. And everybody kind of got a laugh out of it. Yeah, he was really pounding the pulpit that Sunday. And I think, I don't know that we need pounding the pulpit, but we sure need the truth. And we need the reality of what we are dealing with eternally. Eternally is forever. Verse 10. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day. There we are. And to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. There we are. Fiery angels? Yes. See, that's the thing. When Jesus comes back, yes, there will be angels with flame of fire and it will be awesome and they will be returning in the clouds with Jesus in the air. The angels will be there, but the saints will as well. Riding on our horses, you know, following Jesus, tracing His trails through the heavens in His glory. And we will be marveled at. He will be marveled at. That is, among all who have believed for our testimony, Paul says, was believed by you. That's the deal. The testimony believed. The gospel received. And God of heaven known through Jesus Christ. Verse 11. To this end also, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling. And fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. So that at the name of our Lord Jesus, that name will be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these last two verses, I'll just tell you, are one of four little bite-sized prayers in Second Thessalonians. And they're amazing little prayers, and we're actually going to take them up in a couple of weeks before we finish the letter. But I love how Paul ends this opening salvo of the letter. Verse 12, So that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you, and you in Him. Jesus comes to be glorified in His saints on that day. 
And I want to end in John 17 because that promise, that uh, guarantee, that prophecy Paul just laid out before us is exactly what Jesus prayed on the darkest night of affliction in history. John 17, verse 22. He said, The glory which You have given Me, I have given to them. That they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me. That they may be perfected in unity. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me be with me where I am. So that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous, righteous Father... Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in him. And may it be so all our lives and forever. Father, we praise you. You are the eternal God, Jesus We thank You because You are the eternal God who sacrificed Yourself for us in a moment of time. But for You, it is a sacrifice that is seen and known and understood forever. And therefore, Lord Jesus, able to cleanse forever Your people. And we never have to worry ever again about our sin taking dominion over our lives. Oh, thank You, Lord, the way You have worked all this out, the plan that You put into motion, even before the foundation of the world, Jesus, the Lamb slain before the foundation. God, it is overwhelming and awesome. And in this, Lord, we do see Your great compassion. That it is not Your desire that people be eternally in punishment set apart, pushed away, away from Your presence, Lord. That's not Your desire. The whole thing was that we might be where You are, Lord Jesus, and in Your presence. And we see the intensity and the depth and the wonder, Lord, the marvel of Your compassion in the cross of Jesus Christ. Nothing compares to that eternal expression of love and grace. And we worship You for that. And you are, as we sang earlier, holy, holy, holy. In Jesus we pray. Amen.